Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon. And please enjoy our Sunday message. Some of you may be familiar with the expression kangaroo court. Anyone? Kangaroo court? It's a trivial sounding idiom, but in actuality, what it describes is far less playful than the title suggests. A kangaroo court is, quote, an unauthorized mock court or legal proceeding in which some or all of the due process rights of the accused are ignored, and the outcome appears to be predetermined. In other words, a kangaroo court is a sham trial. It is judicial theater is what it is. It is malevolent injustice. There could scarcely be a better description of what the Lord Jesus endured in the hours leading up to the cross. Though his opponents had already decided both his guilt and his sentence, Israel's leaders put Jesus on trial. Uh, a trial that is much more concerned with a desired conviction and execution than with legality and truth. They don't care about that. They know what they want, and they are going to get it one way or another. And yet, as we go through this text today, we will see that there is a deep, deep irony in Matthew's account of this kangaroo court, in that it's the accusers who end up being exposed as criminal, and it's the accused, Jesus, who is shown to be blameless. In fact, that's really Matthew's point in this whole section of scriptures, to uphold Jesus as pure and blameless and innocent. And that's what we're going to see. So let's go to court. So again, if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 26, and you can follow along starting in verse 57. And as we work our way through this text, I want us first to note the many guilty parties in this text before we appreciate and celebrate the only innocent party, which is the Lord Jesus. Again, as I said, the kangaroo start, court starts in verse 57. Let's look at the guilty parties first. And there are four, by my count, four people or groups that are guilty in this passage. The first of which is a man named Caiaphas. You may know that name. Caiaphas was the high priest at the time. Look at verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. This is Caiaphas, we'll call him Caiaphas the corrupt. And what we see here is this gathering of Israel's leaders. They gather together, it seems like in Caiaphas's home. They do this and it is, let's be very clear, it is illegal what they're doing. According to their own law, it is illegal for a number of reasons. One of the reasons being it's at nighttime. They're coming under the shroud of darkness, and we know it's night because in the same chapter, in verse 20, we read this a couple of weeks ago. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And that seems like a long time ago because we've been taking our time, but really if we read it straight through, they were reclining at the table, they had a Passover feast, they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays, He's arrested in that garden, and then he's brought here to Caiaphas. All in one night, it's still evening, it's still dark. And Jesus is taken from the garden to Caiaphas' home with no time to collect witnesses for himself. 
There are going to be witnesses, but it's witnesses on the other side. Another illegality of this proceeding. There's no one to testify on Jesus' behalf. No, no, no. It's, it's really Jesus against them. There's no time for due process or no publicity and no support from his friends because where are they? They've all fled into the night. And Peter's busy in the courtyard trying not to be seen. So here we have Jesus against Caiaphas the corrupt and his crew. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So you get the sense that these guys are really just throwing mud at the wall. They're throwing mud at the wall and hoping that something, anything sticks. And according to Mosaic law, they needed two witnesses to come that agreed with one another. And they just cannot find two and get their story straight. They can't do it. But they need something to justify what they know they're going to do anyway, which is to kill him. It's going to happen. They just need justification. And finally, as we read, they find it in these two people who are willing to twist what Jesus said about his own body, if you remember. He says, this temple, I'm going to tear down and rebuild. He's talking about his own resurrection. But they're willing to take that and twist it around to make him seem like a temple terrorist. He's taking down the temple. And all of a sudden, we've got some traction. Verse 62 Upon hearing this, the high priest stood up, this is Caiaphas, remember, and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus, he won't dignify these charges with, with a response. This nonsense. I'm not even going to respond to this. And so Caiaphas makes him respond by putting him under a solemn oath. I adjure you by the living God, he says. So now for Jesus to not answer truthfully would be tantamount to our modern day perjury. He says, this is under oath. You now must tell the truth. And here's the question. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Are you the long-awaited Messiah? Are you the serpent crusher and the curse lifter? Are you the world-blessing seed promised to Abraham? Isaac and Jacob that we've been waiting for. Are you the eternal Davidic king? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's an answer. Not only does Jesus say yes to all of that, but he kind of ups it a little bit. He says, yes, that's true. But then he goes ahead and quotes Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7, which are messianic texts, and he brings them together. He says, not only am I all of that, I'm also the coming judge. I'm also the judge that Daniel predicted, coming in power, sitting at the right hand of God Almighty. I am coming. So essentially what he's saying, he's looking at this guy who's sitting in judgment over him, and he says, it's not long from now when I will be judging you. When I will be looking at you and I will be swinging the gavel and you'll be on trial. That's what he says. Well, verse 65, you think that doesn't go over so well. Then the high priest tore his robes. Again, just pageantry, showing his grief, tears his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? 
They answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? So they know exactly what Jesus is saying here when he makes those claims. His affirmation of his messianic identity is all Caiaphas the corrupt needs. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. He's slandering God with his delusions of grandeur. There's no deliberation, no witnesses coming forth on the other side, no appeal process. It is unanimous and instantaneous. He is guilty. And Israel's leaders immediately celebrate this conviction that they knew they wanted in the first place. They immediately celebrate how? By beating him, insulting him, and spitting on him. See, Jesus may be on trial, but Caiaphas is guilty. That's what we see in this text. Now, the scene then shifts, as we keep reading, from the courtroom to the courtyard, from Caiaphas the corrupt to Peter the weak. Now, Peter, you may remember, had just been told just hours ago by Jesus that he would deny Jesus, a prediction that Peter denied in response. I would never do such a thing, Lord. He would never do that. But here we come to verse 69. We'll read this entire paragraph here. Now, Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. And he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. While Jesus is inside, being abused by corrupt men, Peter is outside denying his association with him with increasing intensity. Did you notice that as we read through the text? I do not know what you're talking about in verse 70. Then he denies it with an oath in verse 72. I do not know the man. And by the time you get to verse 74, he's swearing and cursing up and down. I do not know the man. It ramps up in his zeal and defiance. And immediately he knows what he's done and he leaves and weeps bitterly. See, Jesus may be on trial here, but Peter is guilty. He's seen guilty. Now, another of Jesus' former followers is up next, and that is Judas, the traitor, as we keep reading into, into chapter 27. So now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Okay, so this is morning breaks now, and it's the same thing. Same song, different verse. The show continues on. Jesus has been convicted by Israel at nighttime. But here we need to understand that Israel does not have the right to condemn him to execution. Not on their own. They have to appeal to Rome, the occupying nation in Israel. So they need permission to put this guy to death, which is exactly what they want to do. And so they go to Pilate, which is Rome's representative in the area. Now keep reading, because now we see Judas the traitor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse 
and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See that yourself. And he threw the piece of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. See, Judas is now seeing with his own eyes the results of his treachery. He's seeing it in 3D right before him. This Jesus who he had followed for years. This Jesus who he had watched heal people and teach God's word. This Jesus who had claimed to be the long-awaited Christ. This Jesus was now going to die. He sees it right before him. It actually worked. It actually is happening. And this realization, it sparks in Judas a remorse. Now let's be clear. That's not repentance. We're talking about remorse. Those two things are not the same. Repentance carries sorrow for sin against God or against someone else. I am grieved that I have caused damage to the reputation or someone else. I am grieved, but that's repentance. Remorse, however, carries regret for the inconveniences being experienced because of the choices made. It, it, it bothers me. It didn't work out the way I thought it would. And that's a bother. I don't like that. And there's remorse. I should have done it differently. This isn't turning out the way I thought it would and the way that I envisioned. We may ask someone, are you sorry for what you did? Or are you just sorry you got caught? That's kind of the difference between repentance and remorse. Are you grieved by the idea that you've wronged someone or wronged God or by the fallout of your actions? That's the question. And Judas was the former. And we see in this text that he tries to ease that burden, that remorse in his own heart by giving back the money that he took in the first place, right? He gives it back, but he's met here with indifference by the leaders who, by the way, the night before got exactly what they wanted anyway. They've already got what they wanted. They've already got the conviction that they needed, so they don't care anymore. What is that to us? We don't care. Go deal with your conscience some other way. Go deal with your remorse. Take it somewhere else. Verse 6. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together, and with the money, they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. The remorse and death of Judas, the traitor, actually leads to the fulfillment of prophecy. It's a tragic but not unforeseen end. So we see here that Jesus, again, he may be on trial, but Judas is guilty. And now Judas knows it as well. Now finally, we come to Pilate. Pilate the pragmatist, who is mentioned in verse 2, but now we come to the trial before Pilate in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Now Caiaphas's charge was religious. Are you the Christ, the Messiah? Pilate's is political. Are you the king? Both times Jesus affirms the accusation. I am both of these things. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. See, to Pilate the pragmatist, none of this makes sense. 
Do you not hear these charges against you? Say something for crying out loud. Do you not understand that your life is in my hands? You have got to defend yourself, man. Pick it up. Verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So in Rome, for Rome, an act of political savvy was for during the Passover feast, that's what it says here, during the feast, they would release a prisoner of Israel's choosing. So think about this. As Israel is celebrating Passover, which, if you remember, is the remembrance of their liberation from bondage in Egypt, Rome would come along and say, we're celebrating with you. We will release one of your prisoners. You choose one, we'll release. And this was, again, an act of political savvy to gain some goodwill with the people that they were oppressing. And Pilate is responsible for that. So if there's peace in his jurisdiction, he gets a report back to Rome and says, I'm doing a good job. And so he wants to keep the peace, and he is not going to pass up this opportunity to establish some goodwill with the people. And he already has someone in prison, this really, really bad guy, notorious guy, Barabbas. And he says, here's the guy. This is who we're going to release. Verse 17. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? or Jesus, who is called the Christ. On one hand, we have this notorious, terrible criminal. On the other hand, this guy who's just claiming to be a king. Like, which do you want out in society again? Barabbas or this Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew, verse 18, that because of envy, they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. And Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. Again, none of this makes sense to Pilate. He doesn't see the legitimacy of the charges, but he does see Israel's envy. Something smells funny about this whole trial to him. His wife says, don't do it. And he has, he's got a known criminal to barter with. But the crowd is loud. And the conversation doesn't seem to be going anywhere. He's not making any progress. He's frustrated. So he says, see to that yourselves. And all of a sudden, he sounds a whole lot like the elders when they were dealing with Judas. Back in verse Four, when they said, what is that to us? See to that yourselves. It's, a, it's an indifference, a statement of indifference. I don't care. You deal with it. This is not furthering my political ends. This is not helping me. Just get this out of here. Deal with that yourselves. Get it away from me. See, Pilate's pragmatism is contrasted here with the bloodlust of the mob, too, in verse 25. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. We will take the blame. Not only that, but we'll spread it out through the generations. That's how much we believe in this. We'll take it all. And he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. 
But as much as Pilate wants to symbolically wash his hands and declare his own innocence, you notice that? I am innocent. He declares it himself. Indifference, we have to understand, is not blamelessness. Indifference is not blamelessness. And so while it's Jesus on trial here, we see that it's Pilate who is guilty. We look at this text as a whole, and there is a lot of blame to go around, isn't there? A lot of blame in this text. We've got Caiaphas the corrupt, Peter the weak, Judas the traitor, and Pilate the pragmatist. You know, Jesus may be on trial in this text, but the guilt clearly lies elsewhere. In his book, Whatever Became of Sin, Carl Menninger, he tells a story of a man who in September of 1972, he stood on a street corner in a busy part of Chicago, just standing there, stone-faced and kind of drab clothing, just standing by himself. And, And Carl Menninger, he goes on to describe, as pedestrians hurried by on their way to lunch or business, this man would lift his arm and point to the person nearest him and loudly say a single word, guilty, and then he would put his arm down. And he would stop for a while. And then after a while, he'd repeat the action. Guilty to the next person coming by and put his arm down again. And Menninger describes kind of the effect that this had on all these passing strangers. He says it was extraordinary and actually kind of eerie. They would stare at him, hesitate, look away, look at each other, look back at him, and then kind of hurry on their way, not sure what to make of this strange scene. One man, however, turning to another, who is actually the informant of Menninger doing this study, this one man, he turns to this other guy and says, but how did he know? The Bible infallibly points a finger at each and every one of us and says guilty. We are guilty. Psalm 14, first three verses says this, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Isaiah 53, all of us, speaking of humanity, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, away from God's ideal and toward ourselves. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, without exception, every human being who has ever lived is guilty before a holy God. Whether they feel guilty or not, that's the catch. Some people say, I'm not that bad. I don't feel guilty. I don't have pangs of guilt. And the Bible says it doesn't matter. You need to understand that you are guilty because he is holy. Our guilt may not be seen in corruption or weakness or treachery or pragmatism like in this text or in any other way, but there are several ways because guilt is guilt. It is all the same. A number of years ago, Dr. Larry Moyer, an evangelist, came to spend some time with us here at Oak Ridge. You may remember the illustration he used for this, this teaching. He says, if we all left this chapel and went out into the parking lot and picked up rocks and took aim and each one after another heaved them at the CN Tower, some of us would throw further than others. Some of us would kind of drop them a few feet in front of us. But not a single one of us would hit that tower. That's how it is with sin. Some of us may strive to live better lives. And and objectively, in the world's sense, they may live better lives. Some of us may just blow it all together and drop the rock in front of us. But not a single person will hit that tower of God's righteousness, God's standard of living. That's the goal. And no one, no one hits it. We are all guilty, the Bible says. The Bible points at us and says, you are guilty. The question becomes... How do we deal with that guilt? 
Okay, we're guilty. What do we do with it now? How do we deal with this guilt? Is there a detergent strong enough or pure enough to get out these damning stains? That becomes the question. Praise God that there is. There is something strong enough. Back to our passage in Matthew 26 and 27. In the same way that the accusers turn out to be the guilty in this passage, the accused turns out to be the innocent. And that is Jesus the Christ. Throughout this passage, he is shown to be as pure as anything else. Totally pure when contrasted with the impurity that surrounds him. Back with Caiaphas the corrupt. You know, the fact that Caiaphas resorts to all these false witnesses means that legitimate ones couldn't be found, right? Over and over again. We've got to get someone to say something against this guy so we can get him. And they go on and on. They cannot find anyone. How pure does this guy have to be that they can't find two people to lie about him, for crying out loud? And they try on and on until verse verse 60 says, they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. There's no guilt to expose in Jesus, and many people know it. That's why they have this mock trial, this kangaroo court, at nighttime. they got to keep it away from the public, because many people recognize this is an innocent guy. Keep it shrouded in darkness and hidden. Then we can push this through and get the execution we really need and want. And then we saw that when he was put under oath in verse 63, Jesus responds with the truth, even knowing that it will condemn him. And so through Caiaphas' corruption, we actually see Jesus' innocence in contrast. Now, speaking of oaths, Peter voluntarily took one, didn't he? In verse 72. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Jesus is placed under an oath and speaks truth, even though he knows it is going to bring him harm. Peter puts himself under an oath to protect himself and to lie so as to avoid some potential harm. No wonder he goes out and weeps bitterly when he realizes what he's done. See, through Peter's weakness, we see Jesus' innocence, Jesus' perfection, his integrity. For crying out loud, even Judas knows that Jesus is guilty by this time. Verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he says. Innocent blood. And the religious leaders that he's giving the money back to, they don't disagree. We saw that they won't use the blood money in the temple treasury, right? In verse 6, It is not lawful to put them, the pieces of silver, into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. This money is tainted. Why? Because it was used to condemn someone who's innocent. We can't touch it. So through Judas's treachery, we see Jesus's innocence. We saw in the last scene, Pilate knows Jesus isn't guilty. He definitely knows that, right? He knows it's because of envy that they had handed him over in verse 18. And he said at the end of it all, they're saying, kill him, kill him. He says, Why? What evil has he done? I cannot wrap my head around this. This guy is innocent. And then Pilate's wife, in a dream, she even knows that he is not guilty. In verse verse 19, she says, Have nothing to do with what? That righteous man. And in contrast to the obviously guilty Barabbas and the self-declared innocence of Pilate when he washes his hands as I'm innocent— In in contrast to all of that, our attention is drawn to he who is truly, truly blameless. And there's only one in this entire scene. Through Pilate's pragmatism, we see Jesus' innocence. And we add to all of that that throughout this passage, Matthew makes a point of highlighting our Lord's silence in the face of injustice and slander. You saw that, right? Over and over again. Verse 63, but Jesus kept silent. Verse 12, he did not answer. 
Verse 14, and he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. This refusal to defend himself is a testimony to his innocence and fulfills really what Isaiah predicted about this suffering servant. And he says in Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So through his silence, we see even Jesus' innocence, his perfection, his purity on display. As I said at the beginning, the irony is thick in this kangaroo court. Those not on trial are revealed as guilty. The one being accused, on the other hand, is proven sinless and pure and innocent. And we need to understand that as clear as scripture is that we are all guilty, it's just as clear that Jesus is guiltless, that he is pure. Again, Isaiah 53 has something to say in verse 9. He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. This is just powerful. And this refers to us, brothers and sisters. We, when it says we, this is you and I. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Without sin. And Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, here it is, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's innocent. He's innocent. And it's because of his innocence and his righteousness that his undeserved death can provide the detergent strong enough, pure enough, to remove our damning stains of sin. That's what we needed. We needed an innocent sacrifice, and we got it. 1 Peter 3, verse 15, For Christ also died for sinners once for all, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, the pure for the impure, the holy for the unholy, the innocent for the guilty. He died for us once for all. One more text I want to read for us in this regard. Hebrews 9, verse 24 and following. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So he didn't go into the tabernacle. He didn't go into the temple. He went into the real thing into the throne room of God. Who can be there except someone that is pure and blameless? It's the only person that can be in the throne room of God. And that's exactly where he went after his resurrection and ascension. The author continues, Nor was it that he would offer himself often as a high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Speaking of the Day of Atonement, once a year you go in with animal blood to atone for the sins of the nation. That's not what Jesus did. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Here's the issue, brothers and sisters. God says to each of us, be holy, for I am holy. And we have to say, I can't be. 
I try as I might, I cannot be. The Bible says I can't be, and my experience kind of bears that out. I can't be holy. And Jesus comes along and says, hide in my holiness. Hide in my innocence. Hide in my purity. That's what he says to each and every one of us. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. How? How is that possible? Because by faith, Jesus' righteousness, his innocence, which we see all over this text, is credited to our account, to my account, to the one who believes. So when God, the Holy One, looks at Josiah, he doesn't see the rest that I am. He doesn't see the guilty party that I am. He doesn't see that. He sees his son's innocence draped all over me. That's what he sees. By faith, the corrupt, the weak, the pragmatic, and even the treacherous can be seen innocent before a holy God. That's just how innocent Christ was when he went to the cross. So we come to this text, and we see now that the testimonies have been given. You know, the witnesses have been called, albeit only on one side, but they've been called. The trial is winding down, right? We've seen who's really guilty and who's really innocent, and it's now time for the verdict. It's now time for the verdict, the decision. And the question on the table is one that Pilate himself asked in verse 22. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? That is the question. What do we do with Jesus, who is called Christ? What is your verdict? What is your decision? All the testimonies are there. Who's innocent? Who's not? What do you do with Jesus, who is called Christ? Is he who he claimed to be? Is he, as he says in this text, the Christ, the Son of God, the promised deliverer from sin, and the coming and eternal judge and king? Is he those things? What will we do with Jesus, who is called the Christ, if he is? What is the verdict? And it's placed before each of us right now afresh. For some of you, for the first time. You've never actually trusted in Jesus for eternal life. And I'll be honest, friend, you've got him on trial, if that's you. And it's a kangaroo court because you are guilty and he's not. And you're putting him on trial, saying, prove to me that you're actually innocent. You need to understand that that holiness is not a matter of goodness. That one day we will all stand before the holy God and he will say, why should I let you into my heaven why should I let you into my paradise? And at that moment, if you can't point to Jesus and say, I'm with him, if you can't do that, then you will just offer your life instead. And God will say, be holy, for I am holy. And you say, I gave some good stuff to charity. I was pretty nice. I was certainly better than that guy. And he said, whoa, 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 friend. Be holy, for I am holy. Yeah, but, but honestly, I lived a pretty good life. I, I did some nice... No, no, no. Be holy, for I am holy. That is the standard. That is the standard because that is who God is. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is why we gather as a church because we are all guilty and God himself, because we could not get to him, came to us and lived that holy life in Jesus Christ. It says, believe in the person and work of Jesus and his holiness, his righteousness comes to us. And then in that day when we stand before the God we love, we can say, you're right. I deserve nothing but separation from you. I do. But I'm with him, the innocent one. I'm with him. And boy, I get shivers just thinking about that moment. Friend, if you've never done that before, today is the day we're pleading with you, we're begging with you, we've been praying for you. Trust Jesus. See, that's too simple. It's too easy. I must have to contribute something, right? Like, I must have to turn from something. I must have to commit my life to doing certain charity. 
believe in Jesus. No works at all. Why? Because he gets all the credit then. We throw ourselves on the mercy of him who provided all we need. Now, the rest of us who have done that and who love the Lord Jesus, who a year ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, whatever the case may be, we trusted Christ for everlasting life. We can still put him on trial, though. We can still put him on trial. Our eternal life is secure. It's hidden in him. That righteousness has been imputed and can never be taken away. That is sure. But still, as we walk in this life, we can still put Jesus on trial. And when we are unwilling to submit to his authority in our lives, we're putting him on trial. You're not really as authoritative as I once thought you were. Putting you on trial. When we question this, the legitimacy of his word or read it through cultural sensibilities, which is all the rage today, we're putting him on trial. I, I know what it says, but... Back then, it was different. He doesn't mean all that now, right? You're on trial, Lord. You're on trial. I'm smarter than you, and I've just put you on trial. Sometimes we attempt to do that. When we lose sight of his innocence, Christ's innocence, and his identity, and fail to give him the worship that he's due, we've got him on trial. And it's always a kangaroo court, because we're guilty, and he's not. He's pristine and perfect and innocent, He's the perfect one, the Savior, the judge, the coming king. He's our redeemer, the spotless lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world as only a spotless lamb can. He did that. What will we do with Jesus who is called Christ? What's our verdict? I want to encourage you this week to worship him for his innocence and his identity, his purity and his person. He is the Christ. He is the son of God. He is the coming judge and king. And he can be all these things because he, unlike us, is completely without sin. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for such a pristine provision. When we understand, brothers and sisters, that that's our identity, that when we trust Jesus, we are hidden in Christ forever. There is a freedom and a joy that comes from knowing where we are in Christ that will propel us to the type of life God wants us to live. But we have to understand what that is. We have to understand that we are guilty, he's innocent, and we hide in him by faith. That's what this trial shows us. He's marching toward the cross for you and for me. And he does so completely undeserved. He's going there to die for us, be raised from the dead, to secure us life. It's a wonderful thing. Worship him this week for that, for his innocence. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.